Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. everyone. Welcome to Journal Club Global. Full disclosure, this is a retake. This is the take two. We had recorded live from Eshray, but unfortunately the audio from the hall um, was, not, uh, was not very excellent. So we are going to be talking about um, a paper, and we have our author here by uh, Angelus Youssef, called Prognosis in Unexplained Recurrent Pregnancy Loss, a Systematic Review and quality assessment of clinical prediction models. And we're gonna have a robust discussion talking about this fantastic paper and what we learned. So first I'm gonna go around, I'm co-hosting this with Dominique DeZiegler, and we're gonna go around and each um, participant is gonna tell us their name and their institution. Henriette, we'll start with you. Thank you. My name is Henriette Svanilsen. I'm a consultant and a professor at the University of Copenhagen and Vidor Hospital. I'm heading the recurrent pregnancy loss clinic there. Hello everyone. Thank you for participating in this great talk. And so my name is Paul Kutea. I'm a physician in our specialist in Paris. I'm working in Hospital Forge together with Tony Dizier. I was in the recent talk. Hello everyone, my name is Angelos Youssef. I'm a PhD student at the Leiden University Hospital um, and also working as a doctor at the Obstetrics and Gynecology Department. Okay, well, we're gonna start with a brief um, overview of the paper and then we'll begin our discussion after that. Great. So, um, so the author thought to be applauded for a super nice paper, a systematic review using all available databases until December 2020. And they were looking only for original studies reporting on prognosis in recurrent pregnancy loss. And um, the authors looked at reporting quality using the tripart statement, which is a checklist um, addressing the reporting of the title, abstract, introduction, method, results, discussion, and then also a a study quality assessment using the ProBest method, where you actually look at the risk of bias. And you have a low risk if it's cohort studies with sufficient numbers, if continuous variables are not categorized, if predictors are consistently defined and measured, and if missing data is taken care of. And then also the authors did a retrospective sample size calculation then they go into model performance. And when we talk about model performance, it's important to distinguish between discrimination and calibration. And you need to discuss both when you talk about model performance. So discrimination is the ability to distinguish patients with and without the outcome. And to do that, you use the seat statistics, which for practical terms is the area under the rock curve. So if you have a 0.5, that's the same model performance as flipping the coin. But if it's higher, then there is a better discriminative ability to say who is likely to get the outcome and who is not. 
Then also the, the, the other part of the model performance is the calibration, and that's the observed uh, outcome um, fitted against the predicted outcomes. And finally, the authors looked at risk scenarios for free hypothetical patients, low, middle, and high risk patients. And they used the author's own variables to see how they did in three categories. And to go to the results, they looked at 1170 studies after removing duplicates. And then they screened title and abstract, and they were left with 13 studies. They had to exclude six, ending up with a total of seven studies. Four were published before 2000, and uh, only one after the guidelines on how to report predicting models. The studies were done in Australia, UK, Japan, Israel, and Denmark. They looked at hospitalized patients, and the number of, of included patients in the different studies ranged between 165 and 1,250. And then very importantly, the studies used different definitions of recurrent pregnancy loss. Three studies looked at RPL saying that it needed to be two losses and one only required that they were consecutive. The other four studies required three or more consecutive losses. Two studies did not mention how they defined and investigated unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss. Then they looked uh, the, the different studies had different predictors, age, number of pregnancy losses, abortion, history, time index, age, cycle, previous life birth, anticardiolipin antibodies, and whether they had primary or secondary recurrent pregnancy loss. None of the studies did a sample size calculation. And when the authors uh, of the systematic review, they put them into this uh, uh, different risk scenarios. Um, three of this, or three of the seven studies, uh, had sufficient numbers, and they all all showed a high variability and put it into the different models. Um, so the authors end up saying that um, four out of seven had a full prediction model, and those uh, three studies actually reporting on performance uh, showed performance ratios around 0.64. So, so all in all, what the authors uh, call out for is um, much better studies. Um, and they show here that the, the, the biggest uh, the biggest flaw is the high risk of bias. All the studies were at very high risk of bias, and that goes to the analysis part, where none of the studies actually did a, 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 a verification and an external validation of their studies. This was a fantastic overview. Uh, we have the opportunity of having one of the authors so it's now time for the uh, time to respond and add more comments, possibly ask more questions. And this is Angelo Yusuf. Go ahead. Thank you for introducing the article, Henriette. I think uh, you discussed all, everything that, uh, that we had in the paper. I think the main uh, objective of this paper was to check if there were any other prediction models available, because when we Look at the ESHRI guideline for recurrent pregnancy loss. We see that the recommendation is to use either of two 
prediction models, which is uh, which were both included in our study. The one by Brigham et al. in 1999 uh, was published in Human Reproduction, and the article by Lund et al. as well. Um, and we were wondering, are why are these two included in the ESHRI guideline? Are there any other prediction models, and which one is best to use in clinical practice? That was the uh, the main goal of the study that we performed. Um, indeed, as you just mentioned, all studies included in this review were found to be of high risk of bias because of not um, uh, taking all steps necessary to develop a prediction model. Um, and all were high at high risk of bias in the analysis part for not uh, performing internal validation, not performing a sample size calculation, and furthermore, not uh, being externally validated to know for sure that a prediction model could also be generalizable, uh, generalizable and could be used in different practices. And so I think where I struggled a little bit was even the best prediction models weren't like really that predictive. Can you comment a little bit more on that? Uh, that's indeed true and the question is always as predicting pregnancy which is really um, a multifactorial process it's quite difficult and we always ask ourselves this question how um, how discriminative do you think that a prediction model predicting pregnancy uh, could be besides having this population of recurrent pregnancy loss and i think that's quite difficult so that's one part and the second part is that most prediction models uh, predicting the success chance of pregnancy after having multiple miscarriages um, include two predictors, which is age and number of pre uh, pregnancy losses. And I think those two are indeed uh, of predictive value, but I think there has to be much more um, uh, which can predict pregnancy success after recurrent pregnancy loss. Uh, and with only two predictors, I think we will not be able to discriminate uh, well enough between those who will have a pregnancy loss and those who will have a pregnancy success. Okay, this, this is uh, very interesting. I mean, this is intriguing and clinically uh, highly relevant. I wonder what uh, Paul, uh, whom I have the chance to work with, Hôpital Farge in Paris, has to add to this discussion. What are your thoughts, Paul? Well, thank you. So the, the first thing that, that shocks me is the number of studies and models that you have taken out when you started the research. I mean, it's quite um, substantial. And one of the question I have before going forward is, uh, uh, Yusef, what is your evaluation of the risk of bias um, and the performance and whether this can be applied to larger scale, given the data that you have looked into and all the research that you have done. So, of course, uh, we followed the ROBUST, which is a tool that can be used to assess uh, risk of bias in prediction models. Um, and the ROBUST uses four domains, participants, investigations, uh, and the analysis, uh, and the predictors. Um, and what we, when we look at all those domains in all included in, um, uh, studies, we see that it differs mainly between the first three domains, but in the analysis part, that's where the big problem is, is 
how uh, how have these studies developed the uh, prediction model um, and did they take all uh, necessary steps to have a really robust prediction model did they take these steps into account and it, i think that's the main problem in prediction models in general is that you really have to develop them according with the latest evidence according to um, how you can provide a prediction model that includes as low uh, bias as possible and this is necessary to be able to use it in clinical practice um, and to be able to make predictions with a certain uh, certain knowledge that these predictions are uh, both relevant and true and are not subject to any inconsistencies because you, you, you developed your model around the definition, the actual definition of unexplained pregnancy loss, is that right? In your opinion, is that definition still valid today, given the research that you have done, or is it still something that we should work on? Of course, the different prediction models have used different um, definitions of unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss, and of course, that makes it a bit more difficult to compare to each other, but it was not primarily the goal to, pre, uh, to compare those prediction models to each other. But I think this definition of recurrent pregnancy loss, of unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss has something, has been something throughout the years, which, uh, which researchers have been struggling with. Um, and I think the latest definition of the SRA, that is the, the definition for unexplained, which we should follow, which has, of course, not been the case with all uh, included studies. But it's always important to keep this in mind when looking at these different uh, studies regarding recurrent pregnancy loss, because throughout years, the definition has been the, uh, different regarding number of pregnancy losses, regarding investigations performed to say that a couple has unexplained or explained recurrent pregnancy loss. So it, it's a really valid point. And I think it's important to have this in mind when looking at different uh, studies in recurrent pregnancy loss. Because one of my fears, and I think all of our colleagues' fears, is to not overestimate, you know, like not to overestimate or to label a patient with something like this, because uh, I think the burden for a patient to be labeled like with the uh, pregnancy, uh, recurrent pregnancy losses is very, um, very difficult to manage. So my question would be, uh, what's the uh, practicability of this model? What, how can it be used, whether it can be used in clinical practice? Uh, and what should people take note from your, uh, your study? I think the main conclusion of our study is that these prediction models are not really fit to be used in clinical practice uh, because of the different risks of bias that we have found. Um, and um, I think when looking at the future, what we need in clinical practice is a prediction model that is developed according to all steps necessary to have as low uh, as possible uh, bias in it. Um, and to, uh, to include the different number of pregnancy losses as well, because as you mentioned, it's of course um, important uh, if, whether you label women or, or couples as couples with recurrent pregnancy losses or not. Um, but in, in general, in the clinic uh, in which we see those couples, it's really something that they try and hold on to, if whether they have 
uh, a relatively high chance of um, having a, a successful pregnancy in the future um, in case it, their, their recurrent pregnancy loss is unexplained, then it's something they really try to hold on to. And it is useful for clinicians as well because it could help counsel uh, couples to, to see what their future might uh, look like. And might, they might be able to change their plans according to uh, this chance of uh, having a future successful pregnancy. If it's really high, then they can hold on to that hope and still try to get pregnant. But if it's really low for whatever reason, um, then they might consider other options. And I, I would like to add here, because I think after this systematic review was published, we did a publication where we used the whole Danish uh, national data set. And that was uh, 1.3 million Danish women and, and more than 3 million pregnancies. And, and we actually were doing really, really good according to the requirements to do a prediction model. And we end up with the same poor C statistics as in the poor high-risk bias C statistics. And I think that is really where it starts to get mind disturbing because that to me means that our definitions are simply not good enough. We can do a model that is super strong. We can validate it in one third of the data set. It's perfectly performing, but it, the C statistics is only 0 0.6. And I think that's really showing us when we look at maternal age, and number of losses that is far from enough to understand why some women and couples experience recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, and I think what we need to take home to the, to the funding sources and to the research groups is that we need to understand pregnancy losses much better. We need to take into account the paternal contribution and the fetal contribution. And before we do that, we will not get a C statistics that's better. That's my, my best take on, on, on really strong data. I also I think, think, oh, go, yeah, ahead, go ahead. No, but I would just think, I think that's completely true. Uh, so I think that uh, because we are all trying to counsel in the best way possible our patients, but given that for that we need international guidelines, that's very difficult given the different practices we have around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, in Europe, PGTA is still something that doesn't really happen that often. And doing research, not knowing the uh, embryo side is very difficult because probably some of those pregnancy losses are due to an employee's or other anomalies and therefore it's very difficult to control for because regardless of whatever statistical model we use we given that we use an infertile population it's very difficult to know or predict what's the unemployed rate for those couples so therefore it also the, the biggest bias is there uh, probably in the us i know Eve, what's your take on it but there you have more pgta and therefore maybe the research done in the US maybe it's more precise or, or more elucidate uh, maybe different other um, categories of disorders that could explain recurrent pregnancy loss. I don't know. Yeah. What's your take? I think my take on it is that it's not one phenomenon that we're predicting. So I think when we look at other predictive models, let's use um, number of eggs that can be retrieved at the time of an egg retrieval you're looking in the same person who has the same ovarian reserve parameters who more or less is on the same dose of medications. Here with RPL, I mean, there are multiple reasons why recurrent pregnancy loss happens. 
And there may be different reasons within the same individual. And so while one pregnancy may be aneuploid, um, there may be more of a paternal complicate, uh, contribution or an endometrial complicate. Uh, an endometrial component like endometritis, and it's not, you're not predicting the same event in the same woman um, every single time. And so I think that's where it goes to your point, Henriette, about understanding the varied etiologies. And I think until we have a better handle on the varied etiologies, we're not going to be able to um, predict with incredible accuracy what, what the outcome will be. And so in the end, it will be a different cause every month or every episode. I mean, I'm sure that there are patterns, but, and I'm sure that there are, I know, you know, in having taken care of numerous women who have done PGTA, like certainly there are patients who have a disproportionate amount of aneuploid blastocysts in patients who have RPL, but that is not, um, that is not always the answer. There is a new study coming out looking at US SART data. Um, Dana McQueen is one of the authors. She may be the first author, but that study specifically looks at the use of PGTA in recurrent pregnancy loss um, and does show benefit. But I think that's one of a multitude of different etiologies of RPL. Um, the other thing where I would really love a predictor model, I don't know necessarily that I, I need a predictor model for every patient that has RPL, but where I think I would really love a predictor model is in those patients at the extreme end where we may be able to counsel them that they need to move on to use of a gestational carrier or adoption. Um, and I, I wish that data maybe from the Danish cohort or maybe from somewhere else, but I wish that data could be abstracted to find out if there is a small subset of patients that will never be able to carry a pregnancy. Or maybe I shouldn't say never, but where the probability is just so low that we can encourage them perhaps earlier than the like sixth pregnancy loss to move to um, an alternative way of family building. If I can add a bit to the previous discussion, I think it's really important to understand more of the etiology of recurrent pregnancy loss, but I think it's also important to mention that we do not have to fully understand um, a certain disease or a certain syndrome to be able to predict um, uh, the outcome well enough. That's, that's the nice thing about prediction. Um, we don't have to fully understand what's going on uh, etiology-wise to be able to predict the outcome, which is pregnancy success right now. Um, and this is what Henrietta said. That's, that's the, the difficult part. Even if you have enough data and large enough groups and you know for sure that your data is solid, it's still quite difficult to predict uh, a pregnancy success with still a low C-statistic. And that's where I think an important role is there to, to find predictors that can help us increase this discriminative ability of our prediction models. And I think the main goal, what you said, Eve, is that um, maybe the small differences in pregnancy success chances is not what is most important, like is it 70 or 65 or 75%. But I think it, it, it would be nice to know with a certain amount uh, um, of to, just to be sure whether certain people have really high 
chances of future pregnancy success, whether it's almost impossible that these couples could carry to term. I think that's that's where we really need to try to distinguish between our uh, patients with recurrent pregnancy losses. I have myself, I want to take the opportunity of talking to this uh, panel of experts and particularly uh, Angelos and Henriette. I have uh, a question regarding what was called classic way back then, placebo effect, okay? There was a belief, uh, maybe it's something to throw out the window, but there was a belief that in case of recurrent pregnancy losses, as soon as you started taking care of these patients, whatever you did, whatever measures you undertook, they would do better. Do you want to comment on that? I mean, is, is it something that we have to forget? Or no, is I, but it I think that's what happened every time we do a study. And there has been quite some publications showing that patients included in studies, patient being looked after will do better than if not. So I think that's just the fact that the small things you do while you while you look at it. But I don't think, I'm not sure that that just, you know, just uh, taking care of the patients will improve their, their chance unless we do something different. If we, if we believe this is biology, I think that's, that's where we have to. Uh, we have to. Yeah. Angela, do you want to add something to that? I agree with Henrietta. It's, it's something that is likely if women are more taken care of that there might be some sort of effect. We know that uh, supportive care in these couples is really important and that it might um, help their outcomes. Um, it, it's something to keep in mind, but of course, especially with couples having higher number of uh, pregnancy losses, there must be some, some kind of biological explanation. So I don't think it's just the placebo effect here. Okay, there's another question. Questions for we have today IVF uh, ART is presented is as the solution to all um, problems of conception, and now uh, we have uh, patients who have recurrent pregnancy losses uh, following natural conception. And is there anything to do with ART? Is there any place for ART in these patients who conceive naturally but have recurrent pregnancy losses? I mean, I think it's, it's important to say that we see the same risk of losing after IVF pregnancies as after spontaneous pregnancies. If anything, then it seems a little higher on on art pregnancies, but I think that's because we monitor them much better than we monitor and we get more of the early losses in art pregnancies. But, but we have done a small cohort where we had repeated biochemical pregnancies. And we actually saw in that group a much better performance if we did IVF after these recurrent biochemical pregnancies. And, and what we thought is, is the background for this is the fact that some of these biochemical pregnancies could in fact be resorbed extrauterine pregnancies. So there is, there is um, an open tube, but it might not be fully functioning. Maybe the cilia is not 
perfectly moving and then it ends up being a biochemical pregnancy in the tube. And for those cases with recurrent biochemical, we saw much better um, life birth chance after IVF. If we push the question, so we use them. If we push the question one step further, is there any difference between fresh embryo transfer in ART and frozen embryo transfer? Can we say anything about that? The data I've seen then it's equal the risk of losing. But I, I, I'm not having big series or, or anything. I don't know what about your, the other one. What do you think? Angelus. I'm not an expert at all at the IVF uh, <laughs> transfers, the embryo transfers. So I wouldn't know whether there is any difference between fresh or frozen uh, embryos. Eve, what are your views on this? I think there are some data showing improved, slightly improved outcomes in live birth rates in frozen over fresh in some of these patients. But I, I think the studies are have some limitations and some bias within. I fully agree with that. I agree that because it's also important to differentiate between euploid embryo transfer and non-tested transfer because usually when you have the fresh cohort, usually they are not tested. So, but so far I think data it's more towards frozen embryo transfer success higher. Uh, but I don't think that that. that it's a fair comparison. At one point, uh, it was addressed the issue of the male factor. And I think this is something that uh, we're only stepping into now. Uh, uh, is there a uh, role, is there a place for the DNA fragmentation assay? And at what time uh, do you have to do it? And what are the measures you need to undertake if it's abnormal? taking into assumption that the man doesn't smoke and eats well. Do you want and to comment on that? exercise enough. <laughs> right. Yes. No, I, I, think... I think that that it's so strong, the, 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 the association between recurrent pregnancy loss and DNA fragmentation. It seems on, on several publications that 40% of the men coming into an RPL clinic will have high DNA fragmentation. What I think is out there to be explored is whether these DNA, uh, DNA fragmentation to aneuploid or euploid losses. And then, as you say, very important to find out how to treat it. Is it ICSI treatment? Is that the role for art that those with very high should get ICSI so it's, it's less travel time or, or what we should do? I think that's a lot of science that needs to be done before we can answer that question. I certainly think that there is uh, an important role for paternal factors in recurrent pregnancy loss. My colleague Nadia Dicosea has already shown that adding certain paternal factors might improve the predictive ability uh, of our prediction model. So smoking, higher BMI, age, even in male, we know that lifestyle factors can play an important role in recurrent pregnancy loss. And of course, as Henrietta just mentioned, there, there is an association between uh, DNA sperm fragmentation and recurrent pregnancy loss. The question is, what treatment uh, is evidence-based? And we don't know that yet. We don't know yet if we uh, give antioxidants, whether this might improve RPL outcomes or not. We don't know um, what, what the exact biological pathway is that this DNA fragmentation might lead to pregnancy losses in these couples. 
So I really think that's something uh, that in the future we have to look into. Is there a point in DNA fragmentation and recurrences of pregnancy losses and lack of effect of you know, trivial treatments such as antioxidants? Is there a point where you might consider uh, AID, uh, sperm donation? I was even going to say a, a testicular sperm extraction, and we've had um, there. Yes, this has been addressed too. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say before I would move to sperm donation, and certainly, sure. um, certainly, it's it's an option. I think that there is a paternal contribution, but some of the thought process is that um, testicular sperm may not have the same level of DNA fragmentation as ejaculated sperm. Are two. Uh, experts agree with what Eve just said. We consider uh, TC, te uh, testicular biopsy, in think, case of. Go ahead. I think that is a, a super, um, from a hypothetical point of view, that, that makes total sense. And I think that's what needs to be explored in larger studies. And I think. What, what we need to have is a robust method to measure DNA fragmentation. And I think that that is uh, one of the things uh, to, to find the good method and then apply it to sufficient numbers so that we get data to really tell us whether, you know, what can be done. Because one thing is uh, the, the, the testicular extraction. The other thing is, is to do ICSI. Um, then all the uh, antioxidants, uh, lifestyle interventions. So, so there's a lot of things that should be tried, but I think we still need the data to really tell us what to do in, 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 the, in the cases we see in the clinic. And I think it's important as well to keep in mind that couples with recurrent pregnancy loss do not have an issue with getting pregnant, uh, like in subfertile population. The problem is staying pregnant. And with all these uh, experimental things that we haven't tried yet in recurrent pregnancy loss, I think it's important to have this distinction in mind. And only when we have enough data and know the biological background why these women do not stay pregnant, that we uh, might try these things of looking at uh, sperm donation or whatever. Because the question still remains, even if you do it, will they stay pregnant or will they carry further to term or not? And I think at this point, there's uh, the scientific evidence does not um, uh, point towards that direction in which we uh, need to have a closer look at only performing IVF or ICSI or those kind of treatments in couples with recurrent pregnancy loss. But I think that um, ART in general might be a predictor for pregnancy success in those couples that need ART after recurrent pregnancy loss or do not need it. This might be a, a predictor that can improve uh, discriminative ability in prediction uh, model. Repeated pregnancy loss is a complex problem. We don't understand enough, but I think we've gone through uh, a very instructive and uh, very interesting discussion. And Rick, do you want to add a closing comment on what was said? I would like to say that we should get so much more uh, research into RPL. Um, and, and I think what, what the, 
the, the big uh, Lancet series in, in April 2021 was kind of paving the way, saying this is the literature until now. The study by, by Angelos and colleagues uh, is the next one saying there's so much need for proper research in RPL. And, and we need to do that because it's so many patients affected by pregnancy loss and we just need to do large enough, good enough studies to really be able to guide these patients. Uh, I, I want to make a couple of comments, concluding comments. First of all, uh, I want to thank all the participants for going through a take two. Eve had a great idea, and this was shared with Kurt Bernhardt, the uh, editor-in-chief of Petrillion Sterility, to actually hold the uh, journal club uh, at a European time for European listeners uh, at Eshre. but we got caught uh, with the um, possibility of people talking to their friends all over the place. So we went to a take two and thank you for having the grace to actually accept that. I also want to uh, make a comment to our friend, Micah Hill, who is actually the person in charge of uh, special media uh, at FNS. And uh, Micah is unfortunately uh, on a medical leave. Uh, we heard good news that he will be with us back at this for SRM. And he is the man who has introduced uh, journal clubs global at the European time. We are considering possibly having a third type at the uh, uh, Far East uh, time. Uh, I want to thank uh, Eve for uh, uh, her participation and all of them, all of you here. Thank you very much. And uh, see you again soon at a Joint Club Global. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.